In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The topic of um, dying and death has been an interest and a preoccupation of a lot of people for centuries. Even the Egyptians that believed in their gods and every other society on earth always held belief in the life after. Something to do with spirits, the life after. And really, there has never really been a time where people didn't believe that until recently, in the last few centuries, with atheism, whereby these people believe that if cultures and societies believed in the life afterwards because they were primitive, because they were backward, and because they feared death, they made up some religion to help them to uh, combat this fear. So basically what they're saying, which is what the, the communists, the atheists were saying in, in Russia, for example, before the revolution, that religion is man-made, it comes out of superstition and fear and is believed by people who are stupid, backwards, dopey, idiots, or whatever else they, they can say. But the answer to, to them is that not all societies who did believe in the life after were necessarily backwards, stupid, primitive, etc. For example, the Byzantine Empire, that was the Roman Empire, which for 300 years persecuted Christianity, they slowly, slowly, in around 400 and something, they actually accepted the Christian religion as the state religion, as the empire's religion. The Byzantine Empire was the strongest empire in, that's ever really had, that's ever really been on earth. They were so progressed in everything, including medicine and science and military. And these people, this, this, the Byzantine Empire, the Greeks, in other words, they were not backward. They were not idiots. The world was jealous of the Byzantine Empire. And as you know, the Muslims, for example, attacked Constantinople for many, many centuries, but they, they um, only succeeded in 1453, and that was because of the sins of the, the Greeks of the empire there. But nevertheless, this theory of Lenin and all the other atheists that have come on the earth, and the ones that still exist, doesn't really make sense to say that only societies or cultures or civilizations that were backwards and retarded believe in the life after. I think that's not correct. And even if you look at the Egyptians who were not Christian, or they didn't believe in the Jewish religion, which was of one God, they didn't worship God, the one God, as the Jews did. Nevertheless, either that empire, the kingdom of the Egyptians, was a very progressed civilization. They were not backward as these atheists want us to believe. So let's get rid of that theory. Forgetting about them for a while, let's look at a new thing which is starting to occur uh, in society. It's been happening, obviously it's happened from centuries before, but there's been a lot of talk about out-of-body experiences and people that have died 
and they've seen their bodies. So, as I said, up to a few decades ago, the medical field or the scientists wouldn't touch the topic because they said, as the atheists do, that's superstitious, that it's a private belief, and some say it's fantasy, and some just say, look, it's up to matter of faith of each person and we don't want to get involved. So scientists and the medical uh, professionals did not touch the topic of the life after. They said we can't measure it, we can't put it on our electric balances, we cannot put it into a test tube, we can't measure it. It's not quantitative, as we say, but therefore, they said we're not interested in that. However, about the 1970s, some scientists and physicians actually changed their mind and actually started to do some research on it. Some wrote books about it. What actually made these people change? Why did they, from saying we don't want to touch it, to boom, like we're not going to really touch on that topic because it will make us look stupid, like imagine me, a doctor, I've studied universities, I'm a great professor, whatever, and to actually involve myself in such stupidities of life after and dying and souls, it's not for me. I'm not saying that some of these people don't believe, some of them do believe, but in general, if they do believe, if a scientist believes in God or if a doctor believes in God, they actually keep it to themselves in those, so say, decades ago. It was really not a, not a nice thing to say because people will say, don't mention those things because you'll lose your credibility. Don't touch it. And a lot of them didn't. So the question is, what made these great men of learning, as they believe that they are, what made these enlightened doctors and scientists, as I said, I'm not putting them all down, but the ones that are actually antagonistic to our faith, we have to say something about it. But what made them change all of a sudden that they became interested? One of the main things is the new techniques of resuscitating the dead. And I don't know when that started. We've got uh, some student nurses here, but... Uh, where's Helen? Do you know when the resuscitation occurred? You don't know? Anyway, who knows? Maybe it was a few, a few decades. Maybe it was around the 70s. The point is that with the discovery of techniques that can resuscitate a, a, a person when they've died, you know, we see people of you watch TV, some of you know, they've done first aid courses, and it basically, you know, it takes a few minutes for the person to actually, the person can be dead, clinically dead, no pulse rate, no heart, right, or, or but heartbeat, so they're dead, and then these medics have to get there if someone knows mouth to mouth and all these other techniques, compressions and all that. They have to get to them after a certain number of minutes, I can't remember what it is anyway, most, some of you would know, but the point is that they are dead. So does that mean that people only came back from the dead or, re or let's say, even before resuscitation, did some people come back from the dead? Yes, there were, there were cases. But in general now, there is a lot of people that have died and they've brought them back in hospitals and by medical teams. 
a lot of these people that in the beginning when, as I said, when it was a bit of a taboo subject where it was like, don't talk about it, a lot of people were scared to actually talk about their experiences. So they actually avoided it. They actually would not talk about their experience, maybe to some people, maybe to their church ministers, maybe things like that. But in general, they would not talk about it because they were scared of being called mentally ill or a fantasist or something like that. They actually were um, avoiding it. Actually, 1982, just to show you like, when it became a little bit more open, the, the topic, 8 million people roundabout in America believe that they've had these type of experiences. There's two. There's the near-death experience. That's a person who is on the verge of dying but hasn't died. And we'll study that in a minute. And then there's the second one, which is those who have died and come back to life when they're, in other words, when they've been resuscitated. So there's the two types of experiences. Ones that are dying and ones that are brought back to life. So, these scientists who became a bit interested, I'll go more into it, actually started to do some studies. They wrote books about it, some of these researchers. And because of that, also some films occurred. And also those people who came back from the dead, now that the topic wasn't as dangerous to talk about, they actually started writing their own books of their experiences. If you go to a library or if you go to a bookshop, there's plenty of experiences of all these people who say that they experienced a near-death thing or that they had died and come back. And they discuss what they've seen and etc., which we're going to see in a minute. Some of these actual um, people who wrote these books or had the experiences, some of them actually become quite strong in what they believe and actually do lectures on the matter. They actually become like evangelists, like we've got the apostles that were evangelists and what were they? They were spreading, because it comes from the Greek word, the good news, news. so they were spreading their good news. And their good news was that there's a life after. And then they explain what's there. And most of the experiences are good experiences. It's interesting also that, that a lot of these evangelists, of the, the ones who believe in the life after, they actually um, become a, quite hostile to the traditional view of life after, as we know from Christianity. They actually even say, oh, it's not like the Christians say. It's not like this. There's no hell. There's none of this. There's this. Well, they all talk about that stuff. And they're quite antagonistic quite negative towards the Christian teaching of the afterlife. Well, even Catholics have still got belief in the afterlife. Protestants still do. Uh, Orthodoxy obviously has. The point is that we have it in its entirety. They have parts of it here and there, but they still have it. And these people, some of them you know, actually become more religious, kind of, and they become more involved in their churches. Some of them become really strong in their Protestant churches and they say, oh, I believe in this. But their writings or their, their preaching is usually distorted from an orthodox point of view. And as well, they um, use the Bible but they misquote it, etc., etc. That's how we look at it. But let's go on to it. So these books and films that have, have um, been produced because of these experiences, have become very popular. 
Now, we know that John Lennon and all those other people, and they, they say that you can change a society through the music, you can change a society. I mean, TV has changed society. Internet, this is what they study in sociology at university. They study how society is affected different factors. For example, we know that the internet came, I don't know what year, was it 1990 somewhere, 995 or 6, I'm not really sure. But Thank you, 93. And 100% that has changed the whole world. In 15 years since it's been introduced, it has changed the whole world. One example for the kids, because they're a bit younger, for them to understand, would be that, um, well, not many people go to libraries anymore because it's on the internet. The other thing is that whatever anyone wants to know, it's on the internet. So people have information that before it was really difficult to find. So that's changed society. These books and these films also have changed society. In what way? They've changed society in the way that people look at death. Not everyone, but it has influence. You know, when you see, for example, on TV, they might have a, a funeral of someone and then, you know, people say stupid comments like, oh, I bet that Jack's up there having a beer and looking down at us and saying, oh, you idiots, or whatever. You know, and all those type of things. So there is, for sure, a uh, influence from these books and films. Remember as well, I forgot to say, that these books and that have become a lot of bestsellers. And they actually give a systematic kind of uh, teaching of what they believe, of the life after. Now, someone might say, well, what's wrong with that? Don't we also believe in that? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. How does the media treat it? That's the books. How does the media, newspapers, TV, how do they treat the topic, this new... Uh, things that are there, they you know, interview them, for example, they might interview people that have said, today we have so-and-so who has come back from the dead or whatever, and they talk about it, they, they speak about, they write about it in the newspapers. How do they view the topic? They're not negative. Some are really positive towards it. And why are they positive? Well, one, it sells newspapers, because it's a topic which people are interested in. You know, people might say, oh, I don't care what happens after, or we're going to die, and that's the end of it. But, you know, some of those people are egotists, but in general, people aren't scared about the next life. Is there a next life? Is there really heaven? Is there hell? And these things that have been written in books and on TV and uh, in the media actually have a very nice type of thing about it, and people like that. Really nice experiences that these people speak about. So, the majority of the public would not ring up the Sydney Morning Herald, for example, and say, oh, why did you put that stupid thing, and why, you, why do you believe those type of things? I mean, really, no one would really much do that. It's not a, a topic which would cause uh, people to say, oh, we don't want it. People want to hear about it, whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter, but people want to hear about it. And why do they want to hear about it? Because it takes away the fear of death. It gives hope, and people are very, I'll use the word again, antagonistic, even Christians, even Orthodox Christians, of really the teachings of the church on this topic. Now, why are they antagonistic? We'll see as time goes on.
Well, one of it is that it doesn't, I'll, I'll say a bit, one of it is that it does not speak about the experiences like they do only in that way. We have other experiences too. It starts with H. We don't say the word. It's four letters. First letter's H, second letter, last double L, and one middle's E. They don't want to talk about that at all. And the Christian churches, as I said, even the, um, the non-Orthodox ones, they do speak about that. They don't want to talk about that. So, they accept death, much more joyful, and people become more hopeful. The ones who are being left behind, who are losing their loved ones, for them it's like, oh, there is a life after. That gives them hope, and I'll be seeing you soon, make jokes about it, etc. Some of them do. But one um, interesting thing in this, oh, sorry, some even accept that, some even, uh, as we wrote in the pamphlet, some actually look forward to dying, especially if their life's not going well. These theories that they've got promote suicide. Because, as I said, what's presented on TV, what's presented in the books in general, we'll see some exceptions, and what's presented on in, in the media is the afterlife has been something nice, not hellish things. And therefore, people who have suicidal tendencies, people who have problems for whatever reason, people that, because a lot of times suicide also comes from pride. A person can be suicidal because they're just proud because things aren't going right for them. I mean, a lot of those people in America that go around and kill people with guns and at the end get killed, I mean, a lot of them were people that had no futures, in a sense, because they themselves, of their attitudes. And so therefore they'll say, well, I'm not going to make anything of my life, I want to be something special, why don't I just go and kill 10 or 15 people and then get known all around the world and there's another life anyway and it's all sweet and beautiful and it doesn't matter what you've done. This is the reason why we as Orthodox have to study this topic. Because this topic, unfortunately, is influencing even our own flock. You people. I'm sure Catholics are doing the same and I'm sure others are doing their job. But here at this moment, I'm speaking to you people as Orthodox Christians. So, at the time that these people are spreading their dogma and it's influencing the orthodox flock, then it is the responsibility of the church to speak up about it. Now there are some people, even clergy for example, who say, we don't talk about those things. We just speak about Christ. And you teach the people that if you've got Christ in your heart, and that's all that counts, and you don't worry about what others are doing in the world, and let's not judge these people, etc., etc. We're not judging the people, we're judging the stupidity or the theory or whatever. But is that true? A Russian Holy Father who lived in um, Russia before the revolution and later, and also was the first metropolitan of the Russian church abroad, Metropolitan Anthony, I can't say second name, couple. Kapovitsky, I think something like, I can't pronounce Russian names, but he's a, he actually was um, in charge when he was in, before the revolution, he was in charge of a seminary, a theological school, and he was in charge of training future priests for the Orthodox Russian Church there. 
he makes sure that he subscribed to every single magazine that existed in Russia at that time. Whether it was on magic, whether it was on mind reading, whether it was on witches, whether it was on theosophy, which is, which we'll talk about that later on, which the soul comes out of the body, which they believe. Whatever was in existence, he actually made sure that was in the library so that the students, the future priests, understand the topics well, because if they're going to help people, they're going to have to know what people are involved with. What are the dangers out there? Priests or bishops who say that it's not necessary, I think that they might forget why they hold the rod. When we see a bishop, we see he holds a rod. That rod is the same as what a shepherd holds. And what does a shepherd hold the rod? So that he can whack the wolves when they come to take his sheep. So it's the same as the church. That's, what he's, that's why the bishop is called a shepherd. Well, actually, even priests are called shepherds. And um, even abbots of monasteries have got rods. Abbesses have rods because they're taking care of their flock. And if anyone comes to influence or do damage to their flock, spiritual damage, they will whack them with their um, that, that rod. And you might say, what do you mean physically whack them? Well, that's happened too, but in general, spiritually, protect their flock. So this notion, I don't know if some of you believe it, that as long as you've got Christ in your heart, then I have to tell you, if you go to the New Testament, to the Gospels and to the Epistles, St. Paul, St. John, etc., all those Epistles there, you'll see how much of those Epistles are dedicated to telling the, the Christians of that time, be careful of that theory, be careful of that belief, be careful of this. Why? If we only have Christ in our heart, like these people say. So, someone might even, even uh, say oh, about myself. I say, oh no, don't talk about that. When the people come, you speak to them about Christ and only Christ. Well, obviously I disagree because that's, I am going to speak about Christ, but I cannot just speak about Christ without also warning and helping people to understand what's going on out there, especially because kids are getting influenced and unfortunately even adults are getting influenced because when you sit in front of, that, in front of the box for so long with the internet, there's no way people aren't getting influenced. I was speaking once to a priest who said to me, I can watch TV and I don't get influenced at all. And I didn't know what to say because it is impossible for us not to become influenced, doesn't matter how strong we are. Some clergy do have to look at those things to see what's going on. I admit I have to look, but I don't, I don't know what's going on. So if someone comes up to me and starts speaking to me about the thing, I don't know what it is. I mean, this, that, that theory is like in Russia, communism, because in Russia, actually, the communists gave permission for some churches to function, but the rule was you will speak only in the church, 
You're not allowed, the priests were not allowed to go to people's houses. They weren't allowed to go to cemeteries. They weren't allowed to go to hospitals. They weren't allowed to go to schools. They only were allowed to do their work in the church. And they only were allowed to preach on Christ and the gospel, nothing else. They weren't allowed to speak about anything in society. So that sounds very interesting that some of the people who are against these types of talks are similar. Now, I don't know if they're related to Lenin, but there's a problem, I think, there. So we go on. So what happens during a near-death experience? The main characteristic of those that are dying, and sometimes those that have died already, but let's just emphasise those that are dying, is that they see dead relatives and friends. So these people that report about their um, near-death experiences say that they actually see dead relatives and friends, some of them even see people that aren't even there, that are alive. But that's sometimes, we'll see why. But in general, they actually see their dead relatives and friends and that's what they write in their books and they, and they speak about. And I have here an example of a near-death experience which I'm going to read. I think it will be good. This is a general one which gives us an idea of basically what it is. The person writes, the doctor told my relatives that I was dying. So obviously he heard that because he was still alive. I realised all these people were there, almost in multitude it seems, hovering around the cylinder room. So there he says that as he was dying, he saw people in the room. And as I said, the general thing is dead relatives and friends. They were all people I had known during my life but who had died. I recognised my grandmother and a girl that I knew when I was at school and many other relatives and friends. It was a very happy occasion. I thought that they had come to protect or guide me. So, that's interesting. Remember, we need the Orthodox Church's teachings to be able to compare. Now, you might say, oh, that's satanic. Some people might think that. But I have, as the time goes on, if I don't finish, I'm going to go on to the, to the next talk next month. So I think this is going to take two talks. There is an explanation for that. And it may not be what you think. Some people might say, it is the dead. And some of you might say, uh, it's the demons. And some of you might say that he's mad. And some of you might say something else. The point is that the reason why there's all these difference of opinions is one, people don't know the teaching of the church. We know everything else. Some of you might even know what's going on in America now with these um, presidential debates and all these type of things. And some of you watch CNN and Fox and other news and go all these things. People know about that. People know about the interest rates. People know about the economy. People know about recession. People know about all these things, but they don't know about their faith. Now, some of you might say, well, does that mean that we shouldn't know about that? I didn't say that. I said, why do we only know that and we do not know our faith? That's the problem. And we're, because we don't know our faith, then we are open to deception. We are open to, say in black and white, losing our souls. If we do not know the teachings of the church, and especially in today's times, not like in Russia in the old centuries and in Greece, where everything was like orthodox way of life. These things were not really much around. People were orthodox and the way of life was orthodox. It was easier, not now. So, the doctors started to notice that these experiences were quite frequent. And also, they noticed that the, that the people who would say what they, that I said, oh, I can see my relatives and friends, etc., they would notice that they were people who were in their, 
They write senses. They didn't have mental problems. They were full contact with reality. Like it's not as if they're looking at some vision up there and all of a sudden they say, I also see an elephant over there or I see a giraffe put his head through the window or other things like that. They actually were seeing people and the doctors have their checks that they do to make sure that the person's mentally there and they notice that these people were in reality full possession of their mental faculties etc so the doctors say why don't we do some research on this topic this is very interesting see they like that because they go well if they're not mental then what's going on then they start to say maybe we can measure it so we can start to do some research on it but remember they only work on what they can measure well, let's see now. They conducted a survey of around a thousand cases or more of those who had this near-death experience and asked the doctors and the nurses who were there at the time. So the survey was questionnaires and interviews with doctors and nurses who were witnesses of these people saying what they said. That they didn't see it, but they heard the people talk about it. But as a testing, again, science, they have to have something which is a way to make sure that it's uh, balanced the, the research. They said, well, why don't we also get some Indian, from India, North India, doctors and nurses to do some of, the, some of their people that also have seen things. Don't know what it's called in science. Anyway, that's a, I forgot now, somewhere to balance, to make, to make sure that the research is good. So they actually did that as well. Now remember these people were people that were dying and in some cases they also had some experiences of those who died and came back. But in general the majority of the thousand people or more were those who were dying and saw what they saw. The doctors and nurses noticed that these visions, apparitions, whatever they are, would occur within about an hour of death, sometimes even up to a day, around about. But it was always when the person was close to dying. The American ones, the people that were dying in America, they would see relatives and friends. But the Indian ones, a lot of them would see Hindu gods, their gods, the Hindu ones. Not dead relatives and friends. So America, they see grandmama and other people, etc. But in India, they see their Hindu gods. About one third of them who actually saw these apparitions, about one third of the Indians would later on become scared, agitated, confused, terrorised basically. They, they, had, they were very anxious, they became depressed. So these things that they were seeing somehow were scaring them. In America, the ones that they studied were different. They were uh, talking these that their friends and relatives were smiling at them, and it was a really nice experience. So there's a bit of a difference there. The uh, the Hindu people, the the Indians, they would say that they would see what's called I can't say the word Yamdu something, which is the Hindu messages of death. That's what they believe in their religion. That they've got these messages, of death, and that's who they say they saw, because that's what oh we over 
Is that correct? Did I say correct? Yamdu. Yamdu, thanks. So that now poses a problem. Why in America, the, those people that they tested saw nice things and they had feelings of peace and pleasures and joy, while those on, in the other side of the world saw different things? We'll come back to that in a minute. Again, those Indians, the doctors and the nurses reported, they also were in their full senses. They were not, like, say, drugged right out of it, because they have to be careful. They obviously chose people who were conscious of their surroundings. I mean, they could be still on drugs but still be conscious. But they have to make sure that the people that they were testing were like that. And they, they were saying that they were. The only difference which seems to kind of confuse the researchers was that the ones who were under some type of drug that causes hallucinations, that they would see people that were alive, not that they were in the room. So say, for example, someone's dying and their father's in France, for example, they would see their father. But these people were on uh, these drugs. They were so this also causes a problem because this person is hallucinating, supposedly, he sees people that are alive, the other people see dead relatives and friends. By the way, also, it's not just those who are on drugs which cause hallucination who would see alive people, but also those who were suffering because of high temperatures, those who had some diseases of the brain and injury, etc. Those people in general would see living people. So this is causing a bit of a problem to the poor researchers. And they were inclined uh, to conclude that there's an afterlife, that's what they say, because these people must be seeing something and they were in their full mind. Uh, but it doesn't mean that all of them believe that, but in general they started to go along the line that, oh, there must be, there must be some there must be a life after because who do they see? But, how about the Hindu gods? Well, we know from medical research when they do things on drugs, I don't know if you know, but it's quite a well-known thing that researchers kind of manipulate sometimes the data to make what they want. So, for example, these Prozacs and pills and all these other antidepressants as if they don't, didn't know that a lot of people who took them would have suicidal tendencies or people who would uh, go into some type of psychosis, etc. They knew that, but they went to companies to do their research who would be more favourable towards them. And only when a lot of people were dying or caught, having problems, a lot, a lot of those people who were involved in all those shootings in America, I actually saw a documentary on that, very interesting. I think they said that, the, if not all of them, they were all on antidepressants or coming off the antidepressants. These people who are going around shooting people in shopping centres and schools, etc. It's interesting. Anyway, obviously they now have what's called that black notice, always saying that these pills can cause such and such. But how many years did those pills were those pills out there until they actually warned the public? And the same with so many years of the kids on those um, ADHD drugs, 
How many of them now suddenly, because there's so many cases of problems, that they start, people start to say these pills are not good? And they, you'll find it with other pills later on. So there is a problem there. So we tend to think that when it comes from the university, I've said this before, it's like God has spoken because it comes from the university. All they have to say is come on to the TV or to a commercial on the radio and say, university tests have shown that, da da da, and people will bow down like they did in the plan of Jura, as we say, to the God of that time, the, I can't even say his name, some Old Testament person there, where St. Daniel and the three children wouldn't worship. It's the same thing now. It's like it's, our mouths open, the doctors have spoken, the Oracle of Delphi. And, but the thing is that it doesn't mean that everything they say is bad. Obviously, they've done, they've done good and a lot of good with God's permission. However, even the ones that are humble actually admit and say, well, I don't know, I just came and this thing came in my head and I came up with this discovery. They're the humble ones. Even Einstein and all the other people knew that they were, that they were being inspired, that it didn't just come from themselves. But there's others who believe that they are God themselves, unfortunately. So they treat people for psychosis, which means people that aren't in reality. The ones who believe that they're kind of gods are giving medication to those who are not in reality. But that's another topic in itself, which we'll do one day. So I think what happened here is that the researchers said, oh, let's just leave the Hindu ones to the side and let's stick to these ones. Death is beautiful. Death is not to be feared. Let's give hope to our patients. Because a lot of times the doctors and nurses feel quite helpless. You know, when they used to see people dying, people that didn't have faith especially, they used to die there with nothing. They didn't have any hope in anything. They didn't even know what was going on. And a lot of the doctors and nurses had got involved in this, and you'll see later on what I mean, where they actually really started to be a bit more encouraging of these beliefs because it helps their patients. So from an Orthodox perspective, are the apparitions and visions seen by these people true? Do relatives and friends actually come from the realm of the dead in order to appear to the dying? So that was that one. That one's for the one which we call near-death experience. Now let's talk a little bit about what happens to a person during a time when he's clinically dead and then later on comes back. That's another uh, experience. In general, those experiences are not exactly the same. They're all kind of got their own little twist to each person's experiences are unique to themselves. But there is a kind of uh, common thread through it, which we'll see now. Here's the example. A man is seriously injured. Oh, sorry, any questions up to where we've, what we've done? Because questions are good because I might have missed something, I might not have explained it, or you might have another thing that you want to say. As long as you say it calmly, you know, you don't, if you don't, uh, what do you call it, if you don't agree, that's okay. You can express your opinion, but that's it. Express it and don't keep on going on and on about it because it just becomes um, irritating and it's not really proper. This is an orthodox church, therefore we are speaking from an orthodox perspective. If by chance I'm not speaking from an orthodox perspective and I've said something wrong, 
That's okay as well, because I'm not an ecumenical council. I'm not a God-bearing father. I'm not 100% perfect. And therefore, that's why these things are being taped. And people get them. If by chance there's something in there, I'm sure that people will write to me and say, well, you know where you said this, this and this? That's not right. If I persist and say, no, it's correct, then they have the right then to write to the bishop. And then the bishop has to do something about it if I'm persisting in something which is unorthodox. And if he doesn't do anything about it, then they write to the synod, etc. See, there's order. There's order. We don't just come up and, you know, rip the priest's eyes out and say, you're wrong, and this is happening today in Orthodox Church, and it's not good, like a real madness that occurs, that as soon as someone says something wrong, we have to gouge their eyes out or put them onto a medieval rack and you, put, you turn the thing until the person renounces their supposed heresy. There might be heresy there, I don't know, but let's just say. Macedonius, who was a patriot of Constantinople, started to teach that the Holy Spirit's not God. And it's very interesting to read the letters of the Holy Fathers that were around in that time. For some reason I can't remember, but there was a lot of Holy Fathers who wrote to the Patriarch of Constantinople, who was teaching that the Holy Spirit is not God, just like in the previous council, Christ wasn't God. Now they went on to the new one, which was that, that the Holy Spirit is not God. And the Holy Fathers wrote to Macedonius and wrote, To uh, my dear brother in Christ, my concelebrant, greetings in Christ, I hope you are well. Da, da, da. And then later on, he, they open up and talk about the heresy, etc., etc. One person wrote, another person wrote, another person wrote. You know, and after a while, when they saw that this person wasn't repenting, that this person was persecuting those who were uh, preaching otherwise to what he said. Like, for example, if people said, I believe that God is, that the Holy Spirit also is God. And then he would start persecuting them, like the Arians did, and like later on others did. Then, that's a different matter. Then starts the struggle. Then starts the, the martyrdoms. St. Augustine as well put some wrong things in his writings. Why? Because they're not ecumenical councils. They're not perfect. Which writings are perfect? Writings that have been accepted by the universal church, by every single orthodox church in the world. Some of St. Basil's writings, some of St. John Chrysostom's writings especially, etc. All these writings have been accepted and say, these writings are perfect or they delete certain things which are not because the church looks at them and the church decides as a whole. That is how it's done. So it's the same with me, if you don't mind. If I say something wrong, right, I'd like my eyes, so please what you do is you have it in order. You do, you know, what's called in Greek, taxi. You know, you say it, etc. Anyone would like to say anything? Yes. That's a good question, but it's coming. But it's a good question, and keep in mind that that's good. Any other questions? So what I do is I do it in a way which is, because of my teacher background, I like to build up 
with the suspense, makes it more of a teaching, a teaching technique. If you don't say it now, it kind of spoils it. So we go now, and people are becoming more and more keen to know what's going on. But if I say it now, then people will fall asleep. Yep. <laughs> Someone put their hand up there. Yes. Um, the Greeks in, from the villages, they actually did uh, have that, that the demon of death. Are you asking, the question is, do we believe in the demon of death? Well, I'm saying we don't believe in the gods of those things. No. Same answer to our friend here. We're going to come to that with explanations. But good question. We're coming to that. And to the demon of death, etc. A man is seriously injured in an automobile accident. As he lies near death, he perceives his consciousness leaving his body somehow. Then he finds his soul, which some of them call spiritual body, but he finds that his soul, hovering several feet above the ground, looking down at his injured body and the paramedics who have come to take him to the hospital. So, that obviously is there, then all of a sudden his consciousness continues on, but in a different way, and he sees his body there, but he is up there. And that's pretty much how these near-death experiences occur. That's 100% that that occurs. I'm sorry, as they describe it, whether it's true or not, we'll come to that. But you'll be surprised as time goes on. The out-of-body condition puzzles him. A lot of times they don't really know what's going on. It also frustrates him because he's unable to call attention to himself. Even though he can see and hear everything that is going on around him, he cannot make himself heard or seen. So no one can see him, no one can hear him or her. When he tries to touch a paramedic on the shoulder, his hand passes through the person's body. So that's like, you know, some of you have seen the movies and a lot of the ideas they get comes from a lot of these things anyway. He also feels that he is floating and in a state of painless warmth and ease. So it feels like a warmth, and then even though he's puzzled, but not terrorised. So, you know, he does feel some type of peace. However, he cannot speak or touch anyone and often feels great loneliness. His thought processes function with striking energy and swiftness. This is characteristic of people who have experienced an, uh, the afterlife experiences. Their minds, their senses, are much more intense than what they did when they were alive. Their hearing, their eyesight, their way of thinking, and we'll see more in a minute, quite interesting things. He can pass through objects without resistance, say walk through, walls, walk through, whatever. As soon as he thinks of a destination, he likes, for example, his family's home. For example, he arrives there. So all they do is think, they're there. Think, they're over there. There, 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 etc. So this is quite a, a remarkable thing. And you might say, well, is it true? That's coming. Some excerpts from these experiences. So some other people have said, for example, I went through and found a few. One person said, I feel warmth and the most extreme comfort I've ever experienced. I must be dead. So remember, they're not really sure in the beginning. Even when they see their body, they're still not 100% sure until they kind of, it dawns on them. 
I felt peace. Another person says, I felt peace, comfort, ease, just quietness. Another person, I saw them resuscitating me. I tried talking to them, but nobody could hear me. Nobody could listen to me. That's what the other person said. This is not the same person. This is just quotes from different people. I would try, another person said, I would try to move out of their way, but they would just pass through me. So he's there as a soul. Then he thinks he has to move out of the way, but the doctor, whatever, just walks through him. I was unable to touch anything, unable to communicate with anyone around me. It is an awesome, lonely feeling. I knew I was completely alone by myself. Now we go back to the account. He enters what he describes later a tunnel. And we've all heard this from those TV shows. That he goes into a tunnel. A long, dark corridor with intense light visible at the end. They've done some really amazing movies with their, the way they do it for their effects and the light and the tunnels and the music in the background is quite dramatic and it actually has a very big impact on people. You know, a lot of people, they can react to a movie but they can't react in real life. For example, I know this father who, even if you saw his child fall down, doesn't have much of a sorrow. But if he's watching something on TV, someone had an accident and then there's the music, the violins and the really nice Hollywood music and all of a sudden you hear and you say what's going on, what's that noise and then you turn around and there's tears so for his own son, doesn't react but for the TV's back, that's because a lot of us have been conditioned emotionally to kind of relate to feel with the TV but not in real life so some people say, oh, I can't feel, I can't feel, you know, my mother died and I can't feel. It's like you want to say, well, if we put some music on, will that help you to feel? Because that's the way, without making fun of the person, because that's the way we have been conditioned. Not the young ones that haven't watched it, they're lucky, but for us who have watched a lot of that stuff, that's how we react. So you see, you go to the cinemas and you just hear, you know. Those days, I mean, when they have really good movies where there's a lot of tears, Kleenex and Sorbent and all those people, they get a lot of business with the, because there's all the tissues being used. But outside of that, there's not much. I'm not saying that not everyone, the other people that do react. But it is a problem. So that's what, why, what I bring that up for. I think we're talking about the, um, oh yeah, the, the, the movies and they've got the light and things like that. The light turns out to be a brilliantly luminous entity that, in, that greets him in a friendly manner and expresses great love for him. So this light is not just a light, but to the person who's experiencing the light, it's like a, a human, I won't say human, but it's like a, a being, an entity, something that has a mind, that has uh, communication, etc. This being is commonly called the being of light in this, in this literature. The man presumes the being is God, others believe it's Christ or an angel or whatever. Although the entity does not identify itself, so the, per, the, the light, this luminous thing, doesn't say who he is or what he is, but the person assumes that it must be Christ, an angel or whatever they believe. The man feels tremendous joy in the being's presence. The meaning of the being of light includes life review, this is important. The person all of a sudden has a replay of his life, but really quick. They see basically their entire life. That's interesting 
because I have read reports where a person wasn't dying, that a person, for example, was being mugged or something, they had a gun to their head, and they've said the same thing, like they go, all of a sudden, everything rushed in my head, I saw my child, I saw this, you know, just, just before they thought they were going to die. So, these life's review might not necessarily be only for this experience. Other people who have not died have also experienced someone that was near drowning, they were not dying, but they were in the kind of panic and they're going to drown. They've also had these reviews, etc. So we'll come, we'll, all this will be explained, I'll start to put it together later. The man feels tremendous joy in this being's presence. So we've got the high speed replay of his entire life. He sees all his interactions, happy and unhappy, generous and selfish. He sees everything before him, with, the, with what he's experienced with other people, the emotions he felt, but he also now, because of his perceptions more intense, he actually knows what they also felt at the time. You know, some people are, what we say in Greek, anesthetic, which means like insensitive, but we can say something to someone and not even care or not even notice that that person's reacted. In this case now, the person's perception is so great that he, as he's watching all these things, he actually even perceives what the person felt in reaction to what he did or said, etc. So, he sees all his interactions happy and unhappy, generous and selfish with other people and experiences again the emotions he felt during each event. He also perceives the feelings that other people had in response to his words and deeds. The being of light expresses no disapproval of any of the man's actions on earth. No matter how malicious, doesn't matter what the man has done, the most evil of them all, selfish or whatever, that he, the, the, the light, this being of light, does not show disapproval. And that's very important. Instead, uh, the luminous entity describes them merely as learning experiences. So this light communicates, which we'll see in a minute, and says that, uh, kind of says, they all learning experience. We've heard that. That's a very good philosophy which is going on today in the world of these. That's a learning experience. That's a learning experience. In the world of psychiatry and other, other things and other books and other fields, and the, there is this thing about learning experiences. And don't worry about whether something's a sin or not a sin. So this is important. The man also sees what appears to be visions of the future. He witnesses incidences to come in his own life, such as he's going to get married, say if he wasn't married, the birth of children, etc., as well as future events in world history, including wars, election results, and international conferences. So the point is, does he actually foresee these things? The answer to that is, which we'll explain later on, but the answer is yes. A lot of these people that come back do say things which later on happen. Not all of them, a lot of them do. And this is what, as we say in everyday language, spins the doctors and scientists out. This is what they say, oh, this is not just something of one's imagination. This is really, really significant how this person comes back and says that's going to happen and that's going to happen etc and about his own life and international things whatever that's important 
At one point, the beam of light asks the man what he has done in his life. The man tries to justify his life because he thinks, you know, maybe he's got a Christian type of attitude or other religions. He goes, oh, I did, I did this, I shouldn't have done, you know, he gets a bit guilty. And then the entity um, is not angry, that's important, not judgmental, but even is amused at the person's record of his sins. Like just says, the entity is like calm and shows that he's amused at the person's sins, unlike Christianity that says that's a sin and that's a sin and that's a sin and that's not good and that's not good and that's bad. And that's why the people love these experiences because they're comfortable. There's no responsibility for actions. When a woman says, why should I have to give word if I want to have an abortion? Or a man says, why should I have to give word if I want to commit adultery behind my wife's back? Or this and that. Uncomfortable things. Inconveniences for people. This is fabulous in a way, isn't it? For them, anyway, for, for people who, who are like that. Not, that's not how it is in Christianity, in orthodoxy. But that's how it is for that. So we have to decide now what's going on. Then the man is told to return to his body and to show more love towards others. The magic word, love. As soon as someone says the word love, everything's justified. Broke back mountain. The love that they have, that justifies the sin. You see, it doesn't matter about the sin. They had love. And those two actors went onto, I think I've said this before, but onto the Oprah show. Another goddess of society. And she sat there and they were speaking about the show Broke Back Mountain. I can't go into details, but you know, because young ones here. But, and, um, they all sat there to speak about their part in the movie and one of them, I don't know if it was the one that just departed recently or the other one, not sure, I think it was the one that just died recently. He said, well, I think that love is what counts, etc., etc." And all the, without not being sexist, all the stupid women in the audience were hurraying and clapping because they used the, you know, the special keywords, love. And you've got to have understanding to people's sexual orientation. They're the key words for today. Women's lib, uh, 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 homosexual rights, and uh, what's the other ones? Um, animal rights, it's very important. Don't ever say anything against the animals. And um, what's the other one, gender there? And race. Anyway, there's some key words that are really important. If you want to make it in the world today, you've got to know the key words. So there, this guy said the key word, and it doesn't matter, it's love which counts. And the women were clapping and, and, and going berserk there. But what was funny is that in the movie, the men in question were uh, going behind their wife's back and left their wives and their children, etc., etc., and that doesn't seem these women who, because this happened to in the show, let's say in the movie, it happened to the women, the two wives in question. But that doesn't matter because there was love. What happened to the promises of marriage where you will be there forever? That doesn't matter. Love. Love for everything. You know, we teach a child about Ronald McDonald. 
because it's love, because it makes the child happy. So that justifies the fact that you are uh, subjecting a young child that's scared stiff from this ugly thing <laughs> with, a, with a painted face, because there is actually a psychological syndrome on that, of kids that are scared of clowns. I think it comes from when I was young. It actually is. There are people, grown people, who cannot go near clowns. Anyway, but it's justified because Ronald helps, um, the Ronald McDonald House helps uh, children that are sick, apart from the fact that their hamburgers are full of preservatives and if you leave them on the table, they'll stay there for three years without decomposing. That doesn't matter because Ronald helps the sick and that's a key word as well, you see? If you go through it, there are so many examples of everything is justified because it's done in the name of love. So as soon as that word said, what did he say? He said, um, go and show love to people. That's it. That's the magic word. A person can do adultery because they love the person. They're wrapped in the person. Apart from the fact that their wife or husband is suffering, don't worry about that. That's not um, uh, bad. That's not um, against love. But because they've got such love for this other person, that's justified too. Because it's done in the name of love. And there's other examples too, which I had the other day with one more. I remembered some, as I was preparing for the talk, there was another good example that you see on TV, you see here in the, in the newspapers. Something which is just really strange, I go, it's love. Well, even abortion, you know, even that where a woman, you know, she doesn't want to have the child because people cause her psychological problems, etc. So that's love. You see, you go because you love the person, but it doesn't matter about the child. And we know now that that type of law that type of stupidity has gone to the point that anyone can walk in and say, I feel depressed because I'm pregnant. That's all. That's all they've got to say. And that's love because you're helping the woman. So there's a lot of them. You'll see as time goes on, I can't think. Plus it makes me sick. So he's told to show love and uh, to show more love towards others. Although reluctant to leave, he returns rapidly to his body and awakens in, the, in his body soon afterward in the hospital. That's a, a typical example of a after-death experience. Any questions on that so far? Yes? These particular this particular research showed that these people remembered. And what was amazing was that, um, actually, I'm coming to that, what really made the doctors to turn 360 and become really focused in this thing? Actually, we'll come back. Just a little bit on the being of light. The meeting of the being of light is the most incredible common characteristic in the accounts of the resurrected, of the resurrected clinically dead. This meeting of this light has a real effect on souls, this part. Not the relatives, not that much of all these things. The meeting with this light is what changes the person's life. Remember as well that atheists, 
who had nothing to do with God, nothing to do with anything, actually who have come back from the dead, changed their lives. And that spins, as we say, people out. It says, what's going on? This guy was a really full-on atheist that said there's no life after, there's no God, there's no Christ, there's no angels, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's nothing. And then all of a sudden this person dies for a couple minutes and comes back and the person changes and becomes whatever he becomes. Might become more of a Christian, he might become something else, whatever, but they change. This is significant. The characteristics of the being of light, number one, it rapidly increases in brightness. As the person comes closer, it gets brighter. The being of light was filled with warmth. Oh, this is a quote, sorry, these are quotes of what people have said. It rapidly increases in brightness. Another person says, the being of light was filled with warmth and love, the magic word, and I felt a kind of magnetic attraction. The warmth would, may not be important for some people when it's, when it's summer like today, but the love is the most important thing. Number three, it doesn't have a recognisable form. So the light doesn't have a body to it, doesn't have a kind of person or whatever, it's just light. Number four, another person said it was Christ or an angel that had been sent from somewhere to guide me. Number five, I heard the doctor say I was dead, I could see this light and it grew brighter as I came nearer to it. Number six, another person says, I didn't actually see a person in this light, and yet it has a special identity. It is light of perfect understanding and perfect love. So they believe that the light has understanding and intelligence, and that this light is full of love. It, number seven, I was out of my body, another person said. I could see my own body, my soul was out. I felt very bad at first, but then this really bright light came. It was dim at first, but then it was this huge beam. At first, when the light came, I was not sure what was happening, but then it asked me if I was ready to die. Now that is interesting. A little touch close to Christianity, but you know, some people say, oh, it's Christ, there's the angels. Some people go, oh, I see it's religious. Like people go to um, those, um, those mediums and things like that, especially orthodox people. Say there's a Russian woman who reads cards, or there's a Greek hag that does the same thing. And then people go to there and they see the icon, or she might say some religious things, and so people go, oh, this must be good. So, you know, these people know the techniques of how to suck people in, as we say. It's the same thing here, maybe, that maybe they just sprinkle a little bit of religious things through the experiences to make people more attracted to feel safe. Christ, love, etc. That's you know, it sounds all right. Especially the one I like. The one, are you ready to die? Um, but is is the light meaning? Are you ready to die because you've done sins, or are you ready to die? Maybe you've got more experiences to go through, and then you can come up and become a butterfly or a horse or whatever, which is what reincarnation believes. Or whatever else we're going to find out later on what these people believe. Some will say, well, if Christ is in there, it can't be reincarnation, because the people of reincarnation don't believe in Christ. But they do. They just believe that Christ is on a higher level. And Buddha's on a higher level. There's all these levels. So that's, that's another thing anyway. But the being of light communicates. The actual being of light doesn't speak but it communicates somehow what we call telepathically, like the person just knows what the being of light is in the mind. It's like a thought transference. 
No words. The newly deceased interpret the being's communications as, are you prepared to die? What have you done with your life to show me? As I said, a little bit of salt, a little bit of Christian things there. What have you done to show me? Which sounds like Christianity. Sometimes also in connection with the being of life, the dead person sees a kind of flashback of the past events in his life. We've already said that before. That some people see the flash in. Some people even see it as they're dying. Some people see it when they see the light. So there's a, it's in both experiences, this flashback of the life. It's those who are having a near-death experience, but I think it occurs more in the one that the people have died and come back. And what is important to note is that these people emphasise that the being of light has no judgement about their sins at all, about their life. There's no judgement whatsoever. And it just, the being of light, it's like it's telling the person, look at your life, think about your life, etc. Which is what a psychiatrist tells you and, and, and things like that as well. So how's your life? What have you done? What do you think of that? You, know, um, you can say anything to them actually and they just don't judge you either. Who or what are those beings of light? So the thing is here, orthodox question, what is the being of light? Is it orthodox? Do orthodox people see this light? What does it mean? Did the saints see this light? Now, I'm sure that most of you would have noticed that so far there has been no mention of hell except for the Hindus. There's some type of funny things there like where people are scared and Hindu gods that are coming to take them away, etc. But in general, in that study, there was no mention of hell. However, other doctors decided to do more interviews and go into it a bit more. And what they discovered, especially one of them in Tennessee, I can't remember his name, he actually discovered, hey, there is some... Um, but actually, there's not even any heaven on the other side. And there's other examples. There's not really anything which is like a heaven. It's more like feelings, thoughts, light. But not heaven as we know it, something nice. Some people believe that heaven is something beautiful, like a worldly sense, but beautiful. And hell is something which is horrible and fiery, etc. But this person, he's decided to do a bit more studies and he discovered that people were experiencing, experience, were having experience of hell and heaven. For example, one person, he said he found himself in a countryside with streams, grass, trees and mountains and some Protestants, other people say, that's paradise. Such a beautiful thing, you know, that's the, the country with beautiful rivers and streams and grass and trees and mountains. And they say that must be what paradise is. Another woman said that she was in a beautiful place and she could see far away some cities and bright buildings, sparkling water, fountains and happy people. And this woman said that is what paradise is. A non-Orthodox Christian woman, she was clinically dead for 28 minutes, found herself walking up a beautiful green, I don't know how it's 28 minutes, but that's not. There are some exceptions, I think. I think there's even scientific things that some people have come back that were dead for a while and I think it baffled the, the scientists or the doctors how they were dead for so long. But anyway. So, um, and this person said that she was walking up a hill in a beautiful green hill, accompanied by someone else in a robe, and she said maybe it was an angel. There was no sun, but light was everywhere. She saw multicolored flowers, blooming trees and shrubs. She came upon a silver palace and heard beautiful singing and heard the word Jesus, the religious part. Then she saw a dazzling yellow light that she could not describe. She saw no figure, 
Yet she was conscious that this light was a person. Suddenly she knew the light was Jesus. She also knew her father was praying for her. And at that time, she returned back to her body. She believed that that is all heaven. Another one, an American woman went to a beautiful garden in a taxi. So there's also taxis in heaven. And it was a beautiful garden, which she said it was paradise, because it's a beautiful garden, etc. But she came back and said that she actually went to this garden in a taxi. An Indian woman, she went to heaven on a cow, right? So, as you can see, there's different experiences of the different cultures. Now, you might think it's funny, but the thing is that we might be laughing, but what happens if it happens to us and we don't, if we don't know our orthodox faith, we may become quite confused what's going on. You know, and these people, God would charge differently to us. I think that the woman who rode to heaven on a cow, etc., I think would be judged completely different to us, uh, as we being orthodox Christians that should know. A New Yorker who entered a luscious green field, his soul full of love and happiness, and he could see the buildings of Manhattan, so in his after-death experience, he saw the city of Manhattan, which is New York, uh, and, and an amusement park in the distance. So that interpretation of an amusement park's fun, Manhattan city, that to him was like, that's beautiful, that's, that's paradise for the thing. Now, there are also accounts, this is the funny thing, there are also accounts whereby people, there are people who feel peace, joy, light, angels in heaven, etc., and see things. Unbelievers, some unbelievers, had experiences where they said that they saw demons in hell which the others didn't say. This guy, this guy that did the study, he actually said that in his opinion there was a lot of experiences of people who saw horrible things. Why didn't the first guy say? Why didn't the first study say? Well, it depends what they want. Maybe those researchers are scared of death themselves. They wanted to make sure that they manipulate the results to make it sound nice. I don't know what, why, why they did it. But the point is that others would see demons in hell, etc, etc. They would say things like, in, like as they were dying, or they would say things like, I am in flames, pull me out, the devil is coming to drag my soul down to hell. Another person said, I saved me, they dragged me down, I'm going to hell, etc, etc. So, there's those experiences, and those experiences. What do we hear about more in society? The nice experiences. Do we hear about the Indians? No, let's leave them out. Do we hear about these people that have had dreams of, of hell and all that? We leave them out. Paradise? Yes. Christ? Yes. Angels? Okay. Love? Yes. Peace? Yes. Joy? Yes. Discomfort? No. Anxiety? No. Depression? No. Fear? No. None of that. Only the rest. The study concluded, this particular study, concluded that it doesn't matter what anyone believes, that doesn't matter on their nationality, on their religion. They still see visions. However, uh, most of the experiences they believe are to do with uh, joy, which is true, most of them are, to do with great joy, peace, serenity, and acceptance of death. That's really the results of the test, what it showed. Often their pain ceases as well. Like when they're experiencing these things as they're dying, they actually, even their pain goes away, and that's why the doctors go, this is very good, that saves us on the morphine. 
and that saves us on other type of medicate because one of the biggest concerns in the hospitals is pain control. How are we going to control the pain of these people? And this year, they say, well, they can see a vision, and then that way we don't have to give them medications, etc. I mean, sarcastic there, but that's how the doctors say, no, well, maybe there's something good in this. You know, another thing which is very difficult for the hospital to control and the doctors, the person's fear, the person's being terrified of, the, of death. That's true. People in excruciating pain. This is a big concern of the hospitals and doctors and of the medical world. And this new theory of visions and stuff like that, even though they might not like it, some of them believe it, some of them don't, but the main thing here is it gives them peace. It gives them joy. It gives them this thing that, oh, I'm not scared of death anymore. And it even takes away their pain. That is it. That's significant for them. So as we said, the researchers tend to say, oh, let's leave the demons and hell to the side more so. The investigators, some actually said, some of them said, well, could it be, I don't know if they believed or not, but they could say, well, maybe these apparitions are demonic in nature. Some of them actually asked that question, but they said, now that can't be correct because these visions, these experiences have good results for the dying and the devil does not do good. The devil does not do good. He would tell his servants, the devil would say to people, go and kill and hate and destroy. But these lights, these visions, whatever they're seeing, are saying, do good to others, love other people. And that, they say, must be good. Plus the fact that, as I said, it makes the person not scared, the one that's dying. You know, another thing the hospital has trouble with when someone's dying is the relatives there, the screamings, the shoutings, etc. The, the whole thing, they've got to also counsel them. All that costs money to actually have uh, social workers and psychiatrists dealing with everyone. It's a whole thing. But when you've got a person that's dying, who's in a type of ecstasy in a sense, like they're actually painless and, and, and happy and joyful, well, you know, and, their, and their relatives are also happy and joyful, etc., and accepting. Well, that saves money on psychiatrists and this and drugs, etc., etc. So, in a way, this is a good thing for them. And, of course, the most important thing is, if it was from the devil, uh, it's, it wouldn't be talking to them about good things, and you wouldn't have good results. Now, you as Orthodox Christians might agree with that, as if the devil's going to say to someone, go back, go and have love for people. But I wonder who's the one who inspired this, as I said, I want to go into detail, um, making love. I use the word love there, making love. Um, sexual activity outside of marriage, whenever anyone wants, because they're making love. So the word love is there. That, according to us, is against God's, God's law. That's only allowed within marriage, but yet it's love. And a lot of Orthodox priests believe that the devil's inspiring that type of um, slogan, making love, and there's other things too, which we'll see. So, all because the demons don't show themselves and might use nice things, like ecumenism, for example. The bad side of ecumenism is the same thing. It says, it doesn't matter what anyone believes. 
The main thing is that we have love. Why should dogma get in the way? And why should we be separated because of dogma? The Catholics say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Orthodox say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, because that's what Christ said in the Bible. And that's what the Church believed for uh, over a thousand years. But then they changed it. But what does it matter whether they believe like that and they believe like that and we're separated in the name of love let's all get together and if the Hindus believe that and the Muslims believe that and the Hare Krishnas believe that it doesn't matter because love is the most important thing and some of you as I said might believe that but there I have to say I've been a, I'll, I'll go in advance there there I have to say that's not correct During the time of Arianism in the Byzantine Empire, the Christians were at each other's throats, one can say. Saint Athanasius the Great, who they called a fanatic, a troublemaker, a demonic person, a person who's a pest, that he was uh, making the empire upside down because the empire was torn apart because Athanasius said that it's the, the Greek, I don't really know properly, I'm not a theologian, but the Omoousios and Omoousios, etc. It's something to do with an eye. There's an eye. Whether it's been put in or put out, I don't really, I can't remember. But it was to do with one letter, and the letter was an eye. If, if that letter is there or not there, whatever, it means that Christ is not equal to God. And the opposite, that Christ is God. And the pagans, because there was pagans in that time, would look at the Christians and laugh at them and say, look at them like, oh, what kind of religion is that? And they're ripping each other apart, which they were. There was fights continually. There was exile. The people were being exiled. People were being killed by a lot of the Aryans, etc. It was a mess. And all because of Saint Athanasius, because he said, no, this letter is important because it changes the whole essence of Christianity. If Christ isn't God, then there's nothing. That's what he said. And the people were saying, who cares about that? For the sake of the empire, for the sake of unity, for the sake of love, just let's leave it and be all together. And what happened was that St. Athanas, of course, didn't. He was persecuted. People, a lot of people were killed by the Aryans, etc. And um, at the end, the Orthodox won. And it was very important. So, yes, we have many of our saints, great fathers and mothers of the church who fought for the, for, for the, the, the correct belief. They didn't take notice of for the sake of love, as they say today in the ecumenical movement, for the sake of love. They said no. Dogma is the most important because without dogma, then there is no salvation. Without belief in Christ's incarnation, that means that Christ became man, that Christ is God, then there is no orthodoxy, there's nothing, there's no point. There's no point in anything. And that's why they did it. They ignored that satanic type of slogan, love, 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 which we see down to today. So, 
The researchers couldn't explain why the Americans in particular, compared to the Indians and some others, had this lack of fear. No fear, no terror, um, which is, in orthodoxy, there is. Back to, I think it was your question, one of you anyway. The question was, do orthodox do that? Yes, that orthodox do feel this um, um, terror, they, that sometimes are terrorised during their death, there's, there's fear. I mean, we have the saints who were dying and would say, am I going to be saved? So there was fear there, yes. And they said, am I going to be saved? And they would pray to God and say, just give me a few more days. And these were perfect. They, they, these saints were great saints, holy, virtuous saints, miracle workers. And they said, have I got enough time? And yes, someone can quote St. Paul that says, I'm ready. I've struggled. And they're exceptions. In general, in Orthodox spirituality, there is this fear. The mother of God uh, knew she was going to die and she had fear of the toll houses, which I'll come back next week, which is the demons in the air as the soul travels up. And she actually prayed to Christ and said, come and personally take me because I'm scared to go through there, through the toll houses. And that's why you see the icon of the mother of God, the Domitian, where you see Christ holding a little, like a little baby looks like. That's the soul of the mother of God. He came and took it straight through the toll houses. So yes, there is fear. That is not experienced in a lot of these American examples, but it is to some extent. Now someone can say, well, maybe that's because the Orthodox have been brainwashed to believe that. So some of you are starting to work out and say, okay, Hindus are brought up to believe in their stuff, and Americans, if they don't believe much, they see other things. And if they believe they're Protestants, whether they'll see a bit of hell and a bit of demons there. And Orthodox, because they believe in that, they say. So some people might, might start concluding, go, you know what? I think I've worked it out. It's got to do with the person's belief at the time of his death. It must have something to do with that. It doesn't explain, of course, that atheists who die um, might see Christ. But, so that does not really compute. There's something not really right there. Are there any questions? Nicholas, question. Nothing? Must have something. I'm enchanted. Don't you, aren't you pondering about anything? After. After. Right. Okay, anyone else? Yes. Um, I don't know if it's relates, but many years ago, I saw quite a small that when people Yeah, I spoke to that psychiatrist myself because I remember taking someone once. I wanted, anyway, this person wasn't very well, and I uh, decided to take them just, in, just to see what's going on as well. I was sticky beak a bit. And um, he actually said those things as well, like, um, oh, you know, the Indians see, you know, the cows and other things, and then the others see this and the others that. Oh, it's all to do with the mind, which is what I said before. Then. Dear doctor, how do you explain that someone who was brought up in the worst communism, for example, in Albania, that was even worse than Russia because Albania is very small, that communism was the worst communism. Because in Russia, you could escape, go here, go there, hide. 
in Albania, this was because it's so small, there was nowhere to hide and there was a big electric barbed wire fence separating Albania from Greece. That was the worst communism. And yet, I'm sure there was uh, cases of those people who were, as I said, for many years, were born atheists. They were never told anything religious at all. The same as in Russia, because Russia, you weren't even allowed to be taught that in the schools. A hundred percent, there were people that were brought up purely, pure, pure, atheists. Trustworthy children of Lenin and all them. Father. Father. So I was actually, um, I've actually been thinking about you. Um, so you, I know you were born in Russia, so you had no influence from the church. Completely. Well, well, not exactly. I've been baptized when I was born, but it wasn't just a tradition. Mm, but you don't have a tradition. But you weren't taught anything. That's right. Never so, been in church. Yeah. Never, after after Christmas, I've never been in church. Never been taught Christ, etc. Et so, does that mean the Father saw an after death experience? Doesn't mean that. What we're trying to show you is that he came out, Father came out of communist Russia. He was there. No religion at all in the schools, etc. Unless some um, yaya there, whatever you call them. Um, but what do you call them? The grandmothers? Yeah, some grandmother or someone that had a bit of understanding of Christianity from pre-revolutionary might teach the child secretly. But in general, a lot of Russians were, as I said, pure, pure atheists. And yet, one of the examples I read in the book, some guy who was the top guy in some communist party in China, I think, he was really fanatical. He read in the soul after death. He died and he came back and he was religious. Now, as I said, either one, he was on something or he was hallucinating, but these people still are quite intelligent. They're still able to do well, not his job now because he was an atheist, but it's just say they're still able to say they're a scientist. They can still be a scientist. If they're a doctor, they can still be doctors or a teacher, whatever. They're still intelligent people. Like people that are mentally ill usually cannot function. Usually. But there are some people who are really high-powered type of workers, intelligent, ordered, etc., etc., and yet... They have these experiences and come back and they say, I believe now I'm, I'm Christian, I'm Buddhist, I'm this, I'm that. Well, how does that explain this theory that people are saying? Yes, Nick. Uh, sorry. There was probably about 10 years ago they actually did an experiment on intelligence about these near death experiences. And that kind of thing. That's what I want to hear, those are the things. Um, they would actually send a current of the current in the brain, and the person that, that they're doing the experiment on would see. But the apparatus, the apparatus couldn't detect that. They must have me measured his pulses and things that he was thinking something at the time. Not that they would know what we're thinking. They haven't got that. You know what I mean? Like a, a, a machine cannot measure that we are at this time that I'm thinking of an ice cream. 
for example. They do not know that in my mind, but they can check pulses and rates and all these electrical things that they do to see that there's something going on, that there's an activity. Yeah, this person actually is lying. Yes. People, they just call mm. uh, the And the person will say, oh, I can see this. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm. So that boils down to... Um, just your imagination, the brain. When you're dying, it's just like that. Like John Edwards, the, that medium, the one that talks to the dead, I saw that they did a study with him. Again, doctors, this is what I'm trying to show you. These are psychiatrists. These are medical people from the university that actually took him. Because like, I think they're doing courses now, but it's you know, parapsychology, you know, the abnormal type of psychology. Anyway, they got him... And they go, let's see, they, they put all these devices on him, put him over there, and over the other side was the woman who he was going to contact her dead. So they put the, these electrical stuff on her as well. And what they just, then he would start saying what he said, I can see your mother, and then she says this and says that. We've, all, we've discussed this before, and other things that he says there, that the mother said that, you know, she misses you and, you know, you know, um, don't forget, you know, as we said before, water the plants, feed the cat, and all these stupidities which have no significance. But that's what these dead people a lot of times are saying. Well, they say things that are loved and all that. But they notice experimentally that this person over there had some similar waves on the electronical thing as her, you know, etc. So from that they go, we can measure it, it's scientific, and they're saying, no, no, there is something there. There is something there. He must be tapping into her soul or spirit or whatever she's what he's tapping into, there's something going on. See, this is what they're doing. This is what we're going to see now. Okay. How do people in general view these things? That's what I said before, just quickly. One, some say they're hallucinations. However, recent experiments in LSD, which is a really bad drug, the Beatles were into that, I think. They even had a song, up, a song about it. People who weren't dying, they just, put some, they just injected them with LSD. And that's a, a drug which makes people hallucinate. Which I think a lot of these pop singers and all that used to take that. Now they take other stuff like ice and all that. Same thing, these things make hallucinations. And um, these people actually had very convincing near-death experiences. They also had condensed replay of their life with the drug. They also saw a vision of blinding light. They also saw dead people and also spiritual beings. Depends on their background, maybe, I don't know. But the point is that if we say that this is only for dying people, then how come someone who is injected with LSD sees similar, similar things to these people? That's the question. Another, so some people say hallucinations, but... Yeah, that's just the LSD, maybe they're hallucinating, but how about the ones that haven't got that? Other people say, oh, the brain's been deprived of steady flow of oxygen, oxygenated blood, and that also can cause that. People that have had, a, had their oxygen wasn't going to their brain, they also experience some of those things. Another, other people say, oh, it's psychological. One, for example, says, oh, these people are making up the stories because they'll get money, they'll make books, they'll go and do talks. Some of them were socially inept. They were socially... Some, some of them have social problems. They can't... No one takes any notice of them. They're not important people. But when they come back and go, I saw... I came back from the dead, then all of a sudden this person that couldn't even speak 
has all these people sitting around him at a party or going out to the beach or whatever and go, I saw this guy, oh, really? And some people, some people think, you know, I might throw an egg in his face, but some people will take notice of it. But the point is, these people become more social, more important. And a lot of people today that are sick comes from this thing about this social and we've got to become social and be able to meet people and the opposite sex and all. It's just, that, that, that's a story in itself, which I want to do one day. Another person says it's a product of the imagination. Even though they're, saying, they're, they're speaking sincerely, they've not even made it up, but it's just remembrances from their childhood or from a movie they saw, etc., etc. So they say it just, it's in their brain and then suddenly it just comes out during this near-death experience or this after-death experience. But they're not making it up. They're not lying, but it's just in their brains and they see it. Another people might say, like someone also, I forgot, that um, it's mental illness, like it's a psychosis or schizophrenia. Well, we've already said that a lot of the studies that were done were performed on the people who did not, who were not diagnosed with these diseases of schizophrenia and psychosis. These are people who lose reality. They're completely out and they make things up. The person here has a relative which has got schizophrenia. She says that she, yeah, she talks to people, she sees demons, she sees this, she sees that, etc. These people are, are ill, but that's not the case in a lot of these people. I'm sure that person from Rukshina, whatever he was, the communist guy, who was not very, if he was mentally ill, they wouldn't have him there as top communist there, but yet, but yet, um, he also saw them. So these explanations are not all 100%, like, there could be some truth to some of them, etc. Now we come to the point. What made the doctors change apart from those things that I've said? One, the one that I said before. These people were not religious, a lot of them. had They were atheists, etc. That's number one. Doctors say, that really, I can't work out. Why are they saying these things when these people are, don't even believe in religion and they come back to talk about Christ and angels, etc. Another one, this is very astounding. When a person dies in the hospital, and they come back, they're dead, and they 100% the doctors say this person was dead for whatever minutes, four or five minutes, whatever. When they come back, the person says to them, uh, I saw you do this procedure, and you said that, and you said that, and even on the other side of the hospital, that professor was talking about that and that and that and that. That is, for the, for the medical world, that's, as I said, that's completely spins them out. They cannot understand that, okay, this person's dead, they can come back. If they want to say they saw Christ, we're okay. If they want to say they saw angels, that's okay. If they see their dog that died 10 years ago, I've got no problem. They've got no problems with that. But when these people come back and tell them the procedures that they did and what they said, some can say they're in a coma and they're conscious. Some, some person that thinks his brain, he can say that. That can be, I don't know, anyway. Uh, like some people say, Lazarus was in a coma for four days. Christ didn't raise him from the dead. He was in a coma. With the bandages wrapped right around him, it's a very funny coma. I thought that he would have suffocated after a minute where, where they put resin all over them and other type of um, embalming fluids. And then they wrap them around such that there's no harm. But anyway, I'm just trying to say that it, I'm more reacting to the stupidity of people that make up theories. 
The practice of the Jews in those days was they wrap, well, they probably still do, they wrap the person up completely. They've got, that's it. They've got no air. So that was a very funny coma. So that make up anyway. Anyway, so that, that's, people can say that. But, okay, the person's in a coma, let's grant them to make them happy because if we don't, they might get upset. So let's say, okay, the person was a coma. How do you explain that he is describing what's going on in the hospital, but not only that, he also can describe what's happening in other parts of the city with relatives, etc. When these people, all of them, some of them come back and actually say these things. Now, some say, I know that. They've got a little ra uh, radio here, and someone is over there, and they're listening, and he tells them, they just said this, this, and this. The funny thing was, I mean, did this person know who's going to die in the first place? I'm not, I'm not really sure. And um, it sounds like a very big, it could be true, maybe that's what happened. I don't know. Maybe these people have um, their um, friends that are hiding in the air, um, elevator shafts or in the air conditioning ducts of the hospital, and they're looking down and listening and saying, that's what they said, now let's tell the other person on the radio what they're saying. So when they wake up, supposedly, because they weren't really dead, even though they had no pulse, so how do they explain that? I don't know. So there's no pulse, the person's up with his mouth open, he's white as a ghost because he's dead, but then there's communication going on. Anyway, that's what they say. But the point is, that's not so stupidity. The truth of the matter is, these people do hear and see things during their death, which confirms that, what does it show? We'll come to that now. And even more remarkable, this is really remarkable, blind people who, were, who had died, blind people who died, came back to life after whatever, they resuscitated them, so they were blind, and uh, they came back and described everything, what they saw. Obviously, if they were born blind, that would not be possible, because it's very hard for a blind person to describe what's going on, because not used to it. But say they were, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe, maybe even them, but in general, people that were blind, they were brought back to life, and those people described in detail what was going on in the operating theatre or around them at the time of their death. That's another point. Now some of you might ask, do you believe that? Do I believe that? That's the question which this girl asked them, yeah? And the answer is, yeah, I do. I do believe that that does happen. Now the next question is, but is it real or is it the demons telling them? Let's reject the radio idea. Let's throw that one out. And let's just say maybe it's the demons telling them. We'll come to that. Those who have undergone near-death experience see things that bystanders do not see, know when someone is even dying at a distance, so they even, while they're dead, they can actually, or even while they're dying themselves, but they can say, so-and-so's dying over there, etc. So there is a type of what's called ESP. We'll come to that in a minute. It must be noted that some people do have a natural, heightened awareness of reality. In other words, these people who are dying and people that have died actually do have what we, what they call ESP. ESP is extra sensory perception. That means that their senses are so heightened that they can pick up things which more people don't see. Now you might say that's too much, but. Let's see what St. Gregory the Great says. He says, 
Sometimes it is through a subtle power of their own that souls can foresee the future. Well, I was telling you before that some people have a ability, not God-given ability, it's just a natural ability that they can sometimes see future events. For example, in the life of Saint, oh, one of the Optin elders, I just read that up. One of the Optin elders, there's an example there, mental break, anyway, mental block there, but one of the Optin elders, there was an account of a girl who was seeing demons. And she was taken by her friend to see this, the alternate elder there in Russia. And uh, this girl's mother had this ESP, this perception, that she foresaw the murdering of the royal family, the Tsar and the whole family. She, the mother, actually foresaw that. And this alternate elder said, yes, it is something which is not of God, but it's a natural thing, shouldn't be cultivated. Some people are naturally have this ESP ability, sensing things that other people don't sense. The problem here that we get confused is that I have said before that only it's the demons, and most of the time it is the demons, and the demons could be working on them even if they've got ESP and promoting it more. But in general, there are people, there are whole families, for example, who their children, etc., children, they do inherit this natural ability of what's called ESP. And that's what Saint Gregory is saying here. Of their own, they can foresee the future. This is now, Saint Gregory stops. Now I'm saying this is different to those who foresee the future by God's revelation. One is by God, one is natural, the other is demons. The demons can guess the future. We've said that in other talks. A person can see some future events naturally and God can reveal the truth of something to do with the future. Therefore, ESP becomes particularly acute, really heightened, when a person, just before their death, and especially intensifies after the soul leaves the body. And I do believe that in these accounts, People are dead and they have left their bodies. So we have some similarities. Orthodoxy agrees with these things to a certain level. And this is how it agrees. One, the soul of the person appears as a double to its body. Orthodoxy believes that too. That when a person dies, they can see themselves double. We see that in the lives of saints, etc. Number two, the living cannot see the soul, but it can only be seen by the spirit. So whatever other spirits may be present, angels, demons, whatever, they can see the soul, the soul can see them, but the living cannot see any of this. Number three, at first the person doesn't know if they're alive or dead. Orthodoxy, to some degree, agrees that on some examples. The saints, of course, when they died, they were met by angels. Number four, we also agree that the soul has all its sense faculties, the person can see, hear, etc. But the, and that the person has ESP, like a very heightened thing of perception. The brain's quicker. They can do things, move around, etc. 
It is unimpeded motion, that means they can go through objects. Orthodoxy agrees with that. Orthodoxy also agrees that there is some light involved. Now, whether it's this beam of light, no, it does not agree with that, but it does agree that there is light. But is it at the end of the tunnel? That does not really gel there, as we say. And also, what also orthodoxy agrees with is that the soul enters another reality, a non-material reality. That's why the soul puts his hand through this, the soul can work, walk through people, etc., etc. It's another world, another reality, another realm, but not of this world. This only proves that the human soul, this is up to where we agree, can survive outside of the body and that it goes into a non-material reality, another world. Orthodoxy agrees with that. But that's about it. But this information does not go beyond the first few minutes of death. All these accounts of people that have gone and come back is only what happened to them in the first few minutes after death. Doesn't tell us much more than that. That's as far as we agree. As for the other stuff, we don't really fully agree, but there are some little things there which will come later. But the point is, that's about as far as those experiences go. Any questions on that point, which is quite, amazing, uh, quite astounding, of the, there are some similarities. Orthodoxy believes that we have a soul. Orthodox Church believes that our soul leaves our body at the time of death. Orthodoxy believes that the soul can perceive, can see, etc. It can pass through material. We believe all those things. As for the cows and the taxis and some of the trees and the, these other things, we will come to more of an explanation. We study more of it next time. And I'm going to end now. There was so much more I wanted to do, but I do tend to talk a lot. But anyway, um, oh, I think I'll do this one because it's going to leave you unfair. An orthodox explanation of the meeting of others. Are the apparitions and visions described in the modern day experiences different from those uh, described in the lives of saints of the orthodox church? Visions obviously occur to sinners of the orthodox church that also occur to righteous people, to the, to the saintly people. St. Gregory the Great says the following. The dying man, this is St. Gregory the Pope of Rome, dialogist, the one who, who gave us the pre-sanctified liturgy. I think, I hope I'm right there. But it says that the dying man recognises, in inverted commas, people, whereas to the righteous, the saints appear. Someone can say, what does that mean? I think St. Augustine makes it a bit better. St. Augustine makes a distinction between the seeming manifestations of the dead and the true manifestations of the saints. In other words, St. Augustine believes that they're not really dead people. The saints, yes, when, yeah, but not these relatives. St. Gregory continues and he says, It frequently happens that a soul on the point of death recognises those with whom it is to share the same eternal dwelling for equal blame or reward. If the person did evil, 
didn't leave a proper life, then he will be met by those of similar nature. In other words, demons. If the person led a righteous life, he will be met by people of the same nature as him, which are the saints, etc. It often happens that the saints of heaven appear to the righteous at the hour of death in order to reassure them. And with the vision of the heavenly company before their minds, so when the holy people that are dying, righteous, repentant people see these visions, they become more accepting of their death. So these people, when they see these heavenly visions, they do not experience fear or agony, which is characteristic of some souls that die unrepentant, etc. My mother used to say, I've never really seen it myself, but my mother used to say that in the village, those that were really um, unrepentant and things like that, they used to have horrible deaths. Stalin actually had a horrible death. He, um, his soul wouldn't come out. But in the village, they used to actually read a service, which I will um, go through next week. It's called the parting of the soul. It's read by a priest at the time of death. Not only for those who are not, the soul doesn't want to come out, but it's also for those who are dying in blessed repose. It's an excellent service, which we'll talk about next week. And he gives examples, St. Gregory, when angels, martyrs, the apostle Peter, mother of God and Christ himself, have appeared to the dying. He further states that the saints have great freedom to intercede for the living and to come to their aid, but the dead people, deceased sinners, meaning those who have not gone to paradise as yet, doesn't mean that they are going to go to hell, for sure, but they are just their struggles weren't as such. Anyway, people who have not become saints cannot come back and visit the living. That's what the church believes. Now, just a sweat there for a minute. Except in very special cases, which I've told you before, that sometimes God, very exceptional, I would prefer if you don't even consider it, because it's so dangerous. Sometimes God has allowed some souls to come back and ask for prayers for themselves or to warn someone that of their own death or not leading the right life. This is extremely exceptional and better to be careful because we can actually, if we think of that, then something might come. It might not be our relative, it might be someone else. It's dangerous. So in general, the saints just say, I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to see relatives. I don't want to see my mother. I don't want to see my... I'll see them if they've been saved. And if I'm saved, I'll see them in the next life. I don't want to see them at the time of my death. I don't want to see them at all. That's the safest way. But there are exceptions. St. Augustine also says that the dead, as a general rule, do not appear to the living. The souls of the dead are in a place where they do not see things that are happening in this life. Like um, the rich man in the parable of Lazarus. That's it. He, where he was is where he was. He could not even see his brothers. He actually was saying to Abraham, I'll tell Lazarus, that's a parable, to go and to warn my brothers. He did not see what was going on. The dead do not see. When you think, oh, my mother can see me, my brother can see me, my uncle can see me. They see nothing. He, in the parable, he was saved, and they can see. Yeah, they can see. The saints can see. They can. They know what's going on. Not the ones who have died unrepentant, or the ones that they still died Christians, but they didn't quite 
become saints, but that's where the churches pray, which we'll talk about that next week, next month. Basically, the dead cannot see what's going on here. And the dead themselves have no power to interfere or to involve themselves in the affairs of the living. This is what St. Augustine says. He believes that cases, now this is important, which will answer your question. He believes that cases whereby dead appear to the living are usually through the workings of angels, I'll explain that, or false visions, that is, the demons attempting through these visions to lead a man into a false teaching of the afterlife. St. Augustine says that a person, if you see your relatives, his father Seraphim Rose actually says, it could just could be natural, just part of your mind. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that it is the demons appearing as your relatives, etc., to trick the person and start to formulate, as you'll see later on, these teachings about the life after, which is completely opposite to what the church believes. It's a trick. The other thing, which I'm not 100% sure of how to interpret it, because someone else heard it on a tape, but I think where it says the working of angels, I think that sometimes when a person is dying, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I will find out more, but I think when a person is dying, that the, an angel, a true angel, can appear as a relative as a way to help the person go into the next life. Because some people are so terrorised, they're just so out of it, that they actually become uh, horrified by the whole thing. So sometimes the angels can appear as a relative to help the person say, hey, look, you know, there's your mother. Because St. Theophan, the, 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 the recluse, actually says things about you'll see your relatives, etc. But I'm not really sure about that one. But there's probably, um, do you know, Father, about that one? Have you read that at all, that the angels can appear to the dead, to the dying as a relative or a friend? Thinking, uh, if the person already dead, so he could see dead people. No, I'm talking. I think I'm. Uh, I'm but, uh, I haven't heard that angels become. Ah, okay, okay. Relatives. But I heard the story about that young boy dying, seeing relatives come back to his parents because they were crying and asking him to come back. He said, "Please let me go. It's not my there. And he told his brother that he died like ages ago, and he never knew that he actually existed. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was born like 10 years before. But, you know, it's not necessarily proving your point. It just whatever. No, I think it could be that sometimes God, yeah, I think sometimes God can allow the angels as a way to help the person in the process of dying or in the next life. Small introduction, like when someone sees their relatives, they can actually say, oh, there is a life after, etc. I mean, for someone to get to that stage, I don't know, it's really bad in the first place if the person doesn't even know there's a life after. That's why we have to prepare ourselves. But these are exceptions, and sometimes they're not even worth to even discuss. But they are exceptions. So we'll say it again. Sometimes the souls, that are, the dead that appear, is and the person's own mind of his remembering, etc. That's natural. 
Saint Father Sir from Rose in his book says it's a natural type of thing which can happen. That's why the others can see Hindu gods, etc., etc. Even though demons can be behind them as well. But in general, the Indians believe in that. They see that, that, that. So there is some truth to what the person believes. They can see, but it doesn't explain everything because we notice that others who don't even, or that boy, for example, who doesn't even know his dead brother, can see the brother and things like that. It doesn't fully explain why an atheist comes back and then he says he's seen Christ and all this stuff, but he doesn't even believe. So in general, we have the natural to the person and to what he believes, what he expects to see. It can be the demons masquerading as dead relatives and friends to lead the person astray. And it can be an angel which may take on the form, because we know angels take on human form to appear to someone like uh, to Abraham, they came as three men, but they were angels. And other times, they can appear for some special reason to help the person, the soul. Those are the three things that I concluded. I think that would be enough for today. Did I mix people up on that last part? You know, you might say, oh, how would we know? Well, that's why we prepare ourselves as Christians. That's why we pray for the dead, etc. Which we'll do that. We'll talk about that next month. Next month, we're going to speak about Christian visions of hell, Christian vision, visions of heaven. We're going to speak about angels. We're going to speak about the nature of angels, what they do, the, the demons, the toll houses to some extent, which is what I said before, the souls trying to go up to heaven. We're going to speak about a lot of those teachings and then try and connect them also with other things that happens in the occult, occult, which is these things where people believe their soul comes out and travels around and then comes back to their body, what they see, etc. I'm going to explain about a doctor who she was into that and she actually used to speak to spirit guides and talk about her um, experiences. She's a doctor, medical doctor. She actually did seminars, which we'll talk about all that next week, next month. The icon is um, for you to keep, and there's some writing at the back, and it's a good reminder of that's a blessed repose, the priest reading, not to believe that because the priest is coming, some people say, I'm not going to read the priest for my mother that's dying because she's going to think she's dying, and that's stupid things like that. But we'll go on to next week as well, next month, exactly how to prepare for death, how do we help the soul after death, etc. That is the second part of this talk. And if you're interested, you are welcome to um, come. This week, I would like to give a... Well, they'll, they'll actually... Pause. Um, this is an e excellent book. It's an Akathis to Christ for a loved one who has fallen asleep. So those of you who have an orthodox person that's fallen asleep, mother, brother, sister, whoever, child, this is an akathis that you read standing up, unless you're very sick, of course, and you sit down. But akathis in Greek means standing up. And you read this prayer privately for that person. And prayer is very strong, especially if you've got love for the person. So that one will be given uh, for yourself. What happened was... Someone decided to buy these for the souls of the person's grandparents. And that's good. That's a bit of a hint of how you help people. So this person bought all of these to give to you, but that's for the souls of that particular person's two grandfathers and two grandmothers. 
So this is how you help the dead, which we will go into more detail next week, next month, I should say. The program, this is not a proper program because I wasn't sure whether I was going to finish the talk, which was really silly of me because it was too long anyway. But anyway, I, we just did a one which we'll do them again later for the churches, but just one so you actually have got something to take home. The next talk is um, on the 2nd of March on Sunday, uh, Orthodox Session of Heaven and Hell, which you're welcome to come. Then we're going to have a month off uh, because of Easter, and we're going to do another talk the week, the month uh, in May, which will be uh, about marriage and family, etc., which is also important. That is going to be boring because it, it won't be. Um, and on that day, you'll be getting a marriage book, a book on marriage. Uh, that's it. So let's do the last prayer. Do the prayer of the Holy Father, Lord, God, 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 God,